Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here talking with you. John Mitchell, unfortunately, cannot be here with us this week due to a prior engagement. And so I will be flying solo and talking to you about something a little bit different than we normally go into. Specifically, I want to go into the topic of fan memory. I've been thinking a lot lately around this subject, uh, mainly because I'm working on a book project about BCS busters and the communities in which they reside, and the meanings that these communities ascribe to these Cinderella stories of breaking through and getting to play in major bowl games. Uh, this, this concept of really deep play and really significant play. And in that regard, I'm going to start out this week by talking a little bit about a moment that's been indelibly inked into my brain. And it's been inked as incredibly significant, but in recent weeks, I've been working on reconstructing this story as part of this book project. And I'm finding that I actually remember a lot less about it than I thought I did. So to set the scene, it's November 7th, 1996. It's less than a month before my 14th birthday, and I'm a fan living in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Now, if you know anything about the 1996 college football season, you know that Wyoming had an incredible run during that year. It was Joe Tiller's final season in Laramie before he packed up and moved on to take the Purdue job. It was a season where Wyoming started the year on a long winning streak that actually extended to the longest winning streak in the nation. They were ranked 15th in the USA Today CNN coaches poll and 16th in the AP Top 25 when they... uh, went to San Diego on a Thursday night to play San Diego State. The thing about this Wyoming team was that they were offensively gifted. You had uh, Marcus Harris lining up at receiver. That year he would win the Bolitnikoff Award, catching Josh Walworth passes all across the Western Athletic Conference. You had Marquise Brigham, a really stout running back who could churn out hard yards against other conference foes. You had a player like David Seraph, who who was a perfect complement to Harris on the other side of the formation. Just a really high-powered offense that was able to pretty much stifle any opponent. When they got to San Diego, however, it was another story. So Wyoming comes into this game 9-0, ranked, as I said, high in the nation, the only team ahead of them in the Western Athletic Conference who was ranked higher was Brigham Young University, good old BYU. And they'll come into this story a little bit later. But I want to talk right now about November 7th, 1996, because what happens is Wyoming ends up getting stymied on offense. This game ends 28-24 for the Aztecs, dealing Wyoming their first loss of the season in a year where they would end up going 10-2 
and finishing as a finalist in the expanded 16-team whack. Now, what's interesting about this game is this game has had unbelievable significance on my development as a fan. I rode the school bus home for 90 minutes from middle school that day, jazzed up about the game the entire time, barely able to do my homework, and my family was not that big into college football. My dad would enjoy watching the occasional Badgers game, but definitely was much more interested in the NFL. Because Wyoming was having such an amazing season, though, I found myself developing a bigger and bigger fandom as the season progressed. And this game in particular just sits there for me as one of the most significant games I've ever seen. But as I said over the past couple weeks, I've been reconstructing this game, watching old footage that's on YouTube of it. I've been reading through box scores, going through old newspapers that discuss this contest. And what I'm finding is that I really don't remember much about it. And maybe that speaks to our ability as fans to block out the bad, to uh, tuck aside these unpleasant feelings. But at the same time, Wyoming had some marvelous plays in that game. And it took a late touchdown by San Diego State to prevail and to beat the Cowboys, becoming the first team to beat the Cowboys all season long. What, what, what I'm getting at here, and it might sound like I'm rambling because indeed I am, but what I'm getting at here is that as fans, we, we put this significance on certain events, certain dates, even though... As time moves on, the actual pain, the actual moments that caused us agony kind of fall by the wayside. What I remember most about that night is not any score that happened on the scoreboard, but rather the feeling as the clock came down to zeros, recognizing that Wyoming could not go undefeated that season, and coming to the realization that I was the only person in my house that was as strung up about this as I was. I I was the only one. And I remember going into the bathroom, one of the bathrooms in our house, and filling up the sink and sticking my head in so I could scream. Scream at the top of my lungs without disrupting the rest of the family. Just let it dissipate into the water and get that rage out. And that's the moment that sticks with me. When I think about the 1996 season, I think about that moment. Not not anything from that game, but that moment immediately after and immediately going and releasing all the visceral pain that had built up over the course of those 60 minutes of game time. And then the other thing that really sticks with me occurs right about a month later. Uh, It might actually have been exactly a month later. I think it's December 6th or 7th. Wyoming gets through their side of the conference. BYU gets through their side of the conference with only one loss. Both teams are highly ranked in in the AP Top 25 and in the coaches poll. And they meet in Las Vegas at Sam Boyd Stadium. I think it might have actually still been called the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl, if I'm not mistaken. 
But they meet up there in Sin City for the inaugural WAC championship game. And it's a hard-fought contest that actually goes to overtime in the first season overtime is implemented in college football. Unfortunately for this Cowboys fan, BYU prevailed. Now, my family ended up, we were on a trip to Salt Lake City at the time, uh, doing some some pre-holiday shopping uh, on a trip that the resort I grew up at would uh, invite people on every couple of years. My family ended up going out and having a wonderful dinner, and they left me in the hotel room to flip out at the game. And indeed, flip out I did. Uh, Neither one of those beds was as freshly made as uh, they were when game time started. But in the end, BYU ends up winning that game, uh, 28-25 if I'm not mistaken. And we end up seeing Wyoming get completely shut out of a bowl game. Now, this has informed so much of my writing moving forward. Uh, Over the past decade, I started covering BCS Busters in the final years of the Bull Championship Series, doing weekly power rankings of teams that might actually make it into a big game. Now that we're in the college football playoff era, obviously, um, those of you familiar with my work recognize that I do group of five power rankings every week in a similar vein. And we've seen increased access over the years for Cinderella stories. But the thing is, is that pain remains. Any team, whether it's Wyoming in 1996 or looking at a team like Tulane in 1998, Marshall in 99, uh, all the teams that had their shot at reaching a BCS Bowl but missed the mark. You know, we even in the season when Utah finally busts through and faces Pitt in the Fiesta Bowl, we see Boise State and Louisville also miss out on the opportunity to play in a major bowl game because the system obviously is only going to take one team if they're going to take any at all. So we obviously don't have the most equitable system even now. But as I think about that memory going back, the thing is, is no matter what the inequities are over time, we build up these moments of huge significance, but we only retain specific memories out of them. Why this is interesting to me is I'm beginning to work on this project, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast where I'm looking at these BCS Buster communities and the stories they tell themselves about themselves. This requires going back into the primary source material of the period, both newspapers and especially letters to the editor, but also beginning to dive into a a burgeoning online world that was starting there in 1998 and providing some space for fan interaction for fan uh, discourse and the ability to blow off steam online. For many, you know, social media did not yet exist, but chat rooms existed. And these proto prototypes for the social media platforms we would see in the future. And 
fans don't recall everything 20 years after the fact. I've done interviews with several individuals involved with different stories from the past. And what we find is that people don't always remember these stories the way that they actually occurred. Memory is a really fickle thing. And it wasn't until I started trying to think about this game that's meant so much for my entire life and realizing just how little of it actually stuck in my brain that got me to recognize that from more than a theoretical level. So I guess before we head into our break, the thing I'd really like to invite all of you fans out there to think about and I'd love to hear from you on Twitter at ZBagalki. Which of these moments from the past, these indelible images, do you recall? Which games have this outsized significance? So if John were here, for instance, I might ask him about something like the Kick 6. Something where it's just an absolute, you know, visceral, absolutely deflating moment. And I'm sure he can recall that moment. I'm sure he can recall the kicker lining up to to boot that 57-yard ball. But how much of the rest of that game does he actually remember? And think about that in your own lives. We all have games like that that we ascribe absolute significance to. We tell ourselves incredible stories about these games. These are the, as Clifford Geertz would say, These are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, that our communities, uh, you know, construct as these mythologies. And yet, it's really the feelings that remain more than the memories of specific moments in those games. And I'd imagine it's probably very similar for most of you fans out there. So in that regard... I'd like to invite us to take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about this concept of BCS busters generally, and why I'm finding this so fascinating. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. As I mentioned at the beginning of our first segment, I am flying solo this week, Uh, without John Mitchell here to bounce ideas off of. So, uh, welcome to our Flying Solo edition. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're talking a bit about fan memory, and I discussed a particular series of memories from the 1996 season that remains so significant, and yet, you know, so little is retained from the actual moments themselves, less so than the feelings. Cinderella moments dredge up incredible emotion. As a fan, we're inclined to favor the emotional over the aesthetic. That's really what it comes down to here. This is something that uh, philosopher Stephen Mumford really talks about, uh, philosopher of sport. And what he looks at is this idea that, you know, emotions and aesthetics are something that gets subsumed for the other. Most college football fans are far more emotional than they are into the aesthetic. We look back even at the past season and, I, you know, I could ask, what are the 10 best receptions that you remember from the past season? 
what are the 10 greatest touchdown runs you remember? What are the uh, most impressive interceptions or most impressive kick returns? And we could probably each name one or two that really stick out. For somebody that has to cover all these games, you might remember a few more. But even even journalists that are writing, you know, significant amounts of copy about multiple games per week still would have a hard time without some kind of reference material to go back to to recall all of these great moments. And that's even just the past 2019 season that came to an end when LSU beat Clemson in the college football playoff national championship game just a few weeks ago. So if it's that hard to remember something just so aesthetically pleasing, what do we have left as fans? And really what we're left with are these emotions that build up over the years. And these are what sustain communities. These are what bring them back to the stadium. It's what brings hundreds of thousands of people to places like State College, Pennsylvania every weekend to sit outside the stadium in their RVs, grilling out, watching games on television, getting a vicarious thrill from hearing the sound sweep over the walls of Beaver Stadium as the crowd inside cheers and anticipating what they're about to see after a few seconds delay on their television screens. And it's that emotion that keeps us coming back. You know, people come and sit outside the stadium because of that emotion, because of that connection. It's a communal emotion. And that's what makes my, my memory that I mentioned in the previous segment so weird, is both of these were very individualized sets of emotions. But at the same time, even though I was experiencing them either alone in a hotel room in the case of the WAC championship game, or before that as the only person in my house that really gave a damn about Wyoming losing to San Diego State, the fact is is that it was a very alienating experience in that regard. But at the same time, it's not that alienating, because even though I was experiencing that alone, I was experiencing it in real time with fans all around Wyoming, all around the Rocky Mountain region, all through Western Athletic Conference territory, all through that gigantic footprint that existed in 1996 for the league. You know, it's that connection, the fact that even if we feel this alone, even if we feel these these really visceral, really terrible emotions on our own, recognizing that somebody else out there understands exactly how we're feeling. Now, I didn't really have the internet back then, or Twitter to rant on, but if I did, I would have been able to immediately patch into that community of, of fanatics who were indelibly impacted by the results that were happening on the football fields in San Diego and then at Sam Boyd Stadium in Las Vegas. You know, I would have also been able to tap into the emotions that came up um, that originally 
came up for me when I got a copy of the Jackson Hole News and I got a copy of the Jackson Hole Guide going into school on a Monday and realizing that my team hadn't been selected for a bowl game. A 10-win team had been shut out of the bowls. And of course, back then, you had fewer than 20 bowl games, so it was a lot harder competition. But at the same time, the fact that conference affiliations determined so many of the matchups left a sour taste in my mouth as, you know, um, I experienced this with other people in the school who were also, you know, following Wyoming throughout the season. I remember uh, going into a long rant with my friend Jeremy about this as we experienced this in real time and, you know, really got to the root of how much of a garbage decision it was and how much it actually stung as a fan to see six and seven win teams go bowling when a 10 and two conference finalist had no, no avenue for uh, redress of their grievances, no appeals court to take this to. And that's the thing that we see in college football. I think that's really where fan memory plays a part and where um, our understandings of this, the fairness of the system come into play. Because for somebody from a conference like the SEC, the ACC, the Big Ten, where you have a reasonable expectation that doing well in that conference that year will land you a spot in a lucrative postseason uh, assignment, you don't have that same thing when you're talking about the smaller schools, the the non-AQ schools as they were called during the BCS era. Uh, the teams vying to be BCS busters, if you will. And now in the college football playoff era, those teams we call group of five outside of the power five structure. It's so much harder for those teams. You now have an avenue to an automatic New Year's six bid. If you win a conference championship and you fare better in the eyes of a select group of individuals who decide behind closed doors and define retroactively why they picked your team or another team instead. So the thing for me is it, it, when I'm thinking about the memory of that 1996 moment, part of that memory is the fact that no mechanisms lie in place. Even when you look at the early years of the BCS era, no mechanism besides finishing in the top six really sat in place for any, you know, highly touted mid-major to land in a major bowl game. Utah finally broke through in 2004, and then we see Boise State have their magic moment in 2006 against Oklahoma. And as this happens, we continue to see the rules liberalize a bit. The top six becomes the top 12. In 2012, we see Northern Illinois get in as a one-loss team. Now, for the first time, perfection isn't required to, to land in a major bowl game. But at the same time, 
a confluence of events that is still mind-boggling to think about had to transpire. You had to see Wisconsin, a five-loss Wisconsin team nonetheless, that was only playing in the Big Ten championship game because in the old legends and leaders setup, Ohio State and Penn State were both on probation and ineligible to compete in that conference championship game. That's why we see Wisconsin, five-loss Wisconsin, go and play a highly-ranked Nebraska team in Indianapolis and then absolutely throttle that team 70-31. to That loss, in large part, is what allowed Northern Illinois to get in. So even for these teams that have increased access, what we see is that ultimately their fate is not entirely in their own hands. Whether it is a team like Northern Illinois who needs a major conference champion to suffer a defeat in order to sneak into a major bowl game, that you're the Orange Bowl against Florida State. Or whether we need to see a team like Utah finish ahead of Boise State and Louisville in 2004. Or in our current setup, it all comes down to one, winning your conference championship, and two, winning the popularity contest in the eyes of the selection committee. You can do everything right, or just about everything right, like Appalachian State did this past year, and that one loss will doom you if you're up against another team with one loss. It certainly can. And we even saw in the first year of the college football playoff, a you know Marshall team with one loss ended up getting set aside for a two-loss Boise State team that won the Mountain West. These popularity contests, these perceptions of strength and weakness, severely impact where a team lands in these subjective rankings, in these subjective determinations of best and next best that end up relegating one team to uh, an anonymous December bowl game versus playing in one of the most hallowed venues in the sport. And the thing is, is even as it happens, fans have a hard time clinging to the, you know, the good memories as well. Because as I said, Wyoming had some incredible moments in that 1996 season. Marcus Harris had a ridiculous number of amazing catches to win the Bolitnikoff Award. And you don't get to 10 wins as a team unless you're firing on all cylinders and producing top plays. None of those, however, stick in my memory, quite like the pain that came after the fact. Again, I'm sure that it's very similar for fans that come close to the mountaintop and miss out. You know, I think similarly about several times when Oregon has played. As an alumnus, Oregon football has become another one of those things that I've adopted is really significant in my life. 
And, you know, I've written about it at Saturday Blitz in terms of having to watch Oregon and Wisconsin play each other in the Rose Bowl and just what split loyalties do to a fan. But even thinking about, for instance, that first college football playoff national championship game in January 2015 against Ohio State, you know, I remember nothing from that game, really. At least nothing good from that game. I remember hating the name Cardell Jones, and that's about it. I, um, you know, I think back earlier to when Oregon played Auburn in the 2010-2011 BCS National Championship. I'm sure most people can think of the only memory that sticks in my mind. It's Michael Dyer getting tackled but not getting tackled, not actually hitting the ground and, you know, getting himself back up in some unbelievable Gumby fashion to bolt further down the field and set up the winning field goal. I remember nothing else from that game. I don't remember any of the good moments that preceded this. There were a lot of great defensive moments for Oregon to be tied 19-19 late in the game. There were a lot of, you know, offensive misfires that I don't remember either. All that I really recall from that game is Michael Dyer not actually hitting the turf. As I mentioned in the previous segment, I'm sure it's that way for every fan. We all have those moments that stick. But the thing is, is we think about them as an entire game that sticks in our head. When in reality, it might be one or two plays that only cling to our our memory. As well as the emotion that really sunk in and formed that lasting shell that will be there with us for an entire lifetime as a fan. These are the things that make us jaded. These are the things that give us pride. But in the end, it's the emotions that matter most in, in, in what we actually retain. On that note, I want to thank you for taking this theoretical journey with me as we think a little bit about fanaticism and what fandom means. Thanks again for tuning in. And hopefully we'll be back uh, with John Mitchell next week to talk a bit further about National Signing Day. So stay tuned for next Wednesday's podcast.